Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we're going to talk about one of the biggest problems in our lives and our politics. We're going to be talking about work. So if you don't have work, it's a huge problem. And if you do have work, it's probably a problem as well. It's even a problem for our politics. Right now, we have the statistic, the unemployment rate, and when it gets too big, we recognize that there is a problem in society. There are too many people who can't find things to do every day to get money. And we assume that politicians should do stuff to make that number go down. Just take a little backwards glance from today back to episodes one and two about the counted world and see how the creation of numbers of statistics allows us to see society and allows us then to identify new kinds of problems. Right now, there's two big crises in the world of work, at least in America. The first is the crisis of the lower class. The lower class doesn't get enough work, and the work that they get doesn't have the same kind of intrinsic pride that the world of work once held. The good symbol of this is the closure of the factory, and then the opening of the Walmart. There are fewer jobs available to people with low or no skills, and those jobs not only don't make as much money, but they no longer have as much status. On the other hand, the middle classes and the upper classes, at least those who work, are working more and more and more. They're putting in an increasing number of hours into each day, stretching out work into weekends, and feeling increasingly harried about the pace of work. To get this work as well, middle and upper class people need an increasing plethora of degrees, and once they get that work, they feel that their jobs are less secure. My life is a great example of this. I am working six days a week. Uh, these work days are 12 to 14 hours long. I feel carried, my personal life is cramped, and What's more, I'm working not for actual money, but to get a particular kind of highly sought after specialized degree that when I get it might not actually get me any job. Uh, funny side note here, uh, I've been reading a lot about work and in the early 18th century, there was this crisis in the Anglican church in, in the state church of, of Britain because there were way too many people getting educated to become curates. There was an overproduction of curates. Too many young men were going into university and studying to become parsons and curates and priests and bishops and whatever, and they weren't getting jobs, they were hanging around, they were overread, overeducated, and underemployed. And reading this and reading all the people tearing their hair out over what to do with this overproduction of literate young men, it really reminds you of the current crisis right now in higher education where we're minting way too many PhDs who are all going after a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of tenure-track academic positions. The more shit changes, the more shit stays the same. So today we're going to be talking about work, and we're going to be talking about a big question. How much did people work and how did this change from about 1700 to 1900 as new technology and new social organizations 
overturned what had been traditional life. So the old idea is fairly straightforward. Sometime around 1770, the Industrial Revolution happened, which changed traditional society, pushed people out of farms and into factories, and made people work harder and longer and in less rewarding circumstances than they had ever done so before. This view probably chimes with you. You probably have some sense of recognition of this process of people moving into factories and then working too much. But that familiarity hides an inner problem, an inner counterintuitive aspect of this story. And that is the central agent of this change, the growth of the factory, increases the amount of work that one person can do at a single time. So that should mean that the total amount of work decreases. As you make people more efficient, they can do more with less time, so they should get greater leisure. And of course, if you've read your Marx or even talked with a Marxist for five minutes at a dinner party, you can see the causation, the story that they're proposing for how this increase in efficiency leads to an increase in work intensity. But that still brings up a question of how can we tell? How can we tell that this change in the 18th and 19th centuries? How can we tell that people actually worked longer and harder? The trouble is, of course, is that people back then didn't leave behind in their wills and their documents and newspapers detailed time use studies of the various professions and occupations in society so we can test whether or not people were actually working. So it's hard to find out. People just assumed, or they've read literature, or they've read people complaining about stuff, and from that they've abstracted out this idea that people work longer and harder in the Industrial Revolution. Thankfully, recent research by Yohayim Voth has been able to help us pin down, if not conclusively, then at least suggestively, what was actually happening to the world of work between 1770 and 1850. He has two big findings. He suggests that actually, on a daily basis, people in 1750 were working the same number of hours as they were in 1830. So the Industrial Revolution did not change the daily rate of labor that each pe person had. People would wake up at about six, they'd go to work, eat breakfast at work, maybe have a big lunch break in the afternoon, maybe have tea, and then work until about six to nine o'clock. The average workday was 10 hours. There was a lot of variation in it by season and by trade and by gender, but day to day, the averages speak volumes. People in 1750 worked about the same as people did in 1830. So does this suggest that the old story of the Industrial Revolution pushing people to work more is wrong? Well, not exactly, because in the same study, Voth shows that even though daily rates of work didn't change, annual rates changed by as much as 30%. And this meant that people were working a ton more. They weren't working more each day, but there were more days on which people worked. Back in 1750, you would get a lot of holidays off. Not only Sunday, which was for going to church, 
But you'd also get Monday, which was often this kind of plebeian pleasure time where you'd go off and get drunk and have fun with your friends. Sometimes, too, people would get Tuesday off as well because they were hungover. And on top of that, there was this whole range of religious, civic, and political festivals. Not just the things that you and I might know, like Easter and Christmas, but also things like Lady Days, or local days of the Lord Mayor, or things celebrating particular moments on the political calendar, like Guy Fawkes Day. All of these days were held as days off work. By the 1830s, this had been pared back. People were working a lot more days. Usually only Sunday was a day off, and then there were very, very few days of holidays that people actually got. Maybe Christmas and then a couple of the quarter holidays where people could go off and get, get take the sacrament. Now let's give a little bit of clarification to Voth's story as well. Um, one thing that's happening, one thing that is pushing this, is that work is becoming more regular. There's more of it, and it's less tied to the seasons, less tied to the light of the day, less tied to shifting demands of production and consumption. Why was this? Well, in the countryside, there's particular times of year for doing things. There's small portions of time where work was needed a lot, where people say would need to go in and get the grain from the fields incredibly quickly because if you left it too long, then it would all be spoiled. There was also seasonal regularities in other trades, like when it got too cold, people couldn't do the spinning because the spindles would freeze. Also, in London, um, tailors only worked when the aristocrats were in town during the London season. For the rest of the time, they were kind of idle, doing in a phrase I just want to say because it's cool, cucumber time, where they were so poor that all that they could eat was cucumbers. The change that happened with the Industrial Revolution wasn't just that people got new machines that forced them into new work. It was that the market expanded, which meant that work became more regular. It could be more predictable, and it could happen every single day. This wasn't just a story of machines, but this was a story of the expansion of the national market through improvements in transportation, and improvements in information gathering, and improvements in marketing and retailing. And also, this is a change in who exactly it was that worked. We've told this familiar story to you a couple times where women go from working within the home in things that we might call proto-industry, like helping out with spinning, and then they go off and work in the factories with children. This is another change in what was intermittent piecework to what became regular continuous work. Women and children moved out of the home where they might mix different kinds of work together and into factories or more specialized areas of production where the work happened the same way mostly every single day. Now, I'll just briefly tell why Voth suggests that this happens. He points to a number of potential arguments for why this happened. One is, remember the early 19th century was full of children 
And this means that parents had to work harder to feed all of the little mouths. Economically, this is called the dependency ratio. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the same time as people were working a greater number of days each year, there was a high dependency ratio. But in what I can only describe as historical economic magic, he says that this accounts for only one-sixth of the story. The other big change that he identifies is that people were locked in new ways of consuming goods, that there were new ways of participating in leisure that he argues were more productive. These new productive ways of having leisure, like going to a coffee house and reading a newspaper, or going to the theater, or going to get drunk with a bunch of friends and going out dancing in an alehouse that is specifically made to do that, or maybe even going out gambling at a horse race. These new productive amounts of leisure meant that people shifted to work so that they could afford the new kind of high-strength leisure that was being adopted at the time. If that doesn't exactly make sense, I'm having trouble actually understanding it myself. But he argues that pro productivity is the real shift here. It's not the productivity of work, but rather the productivity of leisure. People can do more with less time. They can get more units of utility out of less time. Maybe a good explanation of it would be the advance of a ready meal. So, a utility of a given food item we can say is like one or two happinesses, right? And I can get those one or two happinesses from going out to the store and buying a bunch of stuff and then chopping it up and cooking it and eating it myself. That takes maybe an hour, an hour and a half per meal, but I can also go out and buy the meal and get the same amount of utility. It takes a shorter amount of time to get that utility but it costs more money. It's that kind of shift in personal economics that Voth suggests is the reason for people working a greater number of days each year. Of course, this is a little bit naive to me. It doesn't seem to me to be the best explanation for this change that a bunch of people just all of a sudden wanted to spend more on leisure goods and so they gave themselves less leisure time. I think that there's probably a much more complicated story where you don't you do have these new forms of leisure and consumption that are encouraging people to go out and work, but you also have new ways of controlling labor, like the factory, new ways of pinching labor, like new credit markets, and new ethoses of what labor actually means, like Methodism, which suggests that the way that people can get salvation, spiritual salvation, is by working hard and regularly alongside those great middle-class virtues that we've been discussing for so long of hard work, probity, of, you know, future planning, all those things, all these cultural reasons, I think, must play into Voth's economic story. Then the second big move in this story is that after 1830, people stopped working as much. So, just to recap, from 1770 to 1830, people worked more. From 1830 to the present, people worked less. This slow rollback in the amount of hours that people worked each year happened in different groups at different times. 
the first group of people who it happened to were children. The big moment here is the passage of the Factory Act in 1833. Now, working people were agitating for fewer hours for everybody, for more protection for everybody, and also they were advocating for women and children not to be allowed to work at all. But the powers that be focused on children. And this led to a series of acts being passed that regulated children in factories and mines. They said that no child could work under the age of nine. Great. And that children from nine to 13 could work no more than nine hours a day. Also great. Um, and that children were not to work at night. Those were the big laws that were passed to protect children throughout Britain. Oh, and also four factory inspectors were appointed to make sure that the law was kept up. These four factory inspectors, of course, would go to every single factory in Britain and try to make sure that people weren't violating it. Obviously, this was not a very revolutionary law, but it did start something big by marking out certain groups of people from whom the government could say that it had a stake in protecting them by controlling the way that they worked. This was kind of radical because the other side of this is to say, look, a nine-year-old can actually decide what they want to do. Their parents can send them off to work if the family decides that they need the extra labor. And furthermore, their parents can send them off to work if they decide that working in a factory will actually help the kid get those good middle-class virtues of hard work. After the 1833 Factory Act, the working class political people continued to push for changes in the way that people worked. And they pushed this in ways that we might find very familiar when we go to a college campus like Berkeley and see protests. They could not vote yet, remember. The working class people would not get the vote until the 1860s. And so to claim something for themselves politically, they had to go out in public and make noise. So men, women, and children who consider themselves some sort of working class identity, although that's really complicated, would go out and sing songs and march and hold up banners, all urging for there to be legislative and societal action to change things that they thought were abuses. The rallying cry was this idea that came from the mythical King Albert of eight hours work, eight hours sleep, and eight hours play. This is still a really electrifying idea. I've seen it printed on t-shirts of labor activists today. And these new rallying cries of eight hours work, eight hours play, and eight hours sleep got people involved in politics. They got them out into the streets chanting and singing, mobilized to try to shift things. The next step after children were barred from factories was the 10 Hours Act of 1847. And this meant that women and children could only work 10 hours a day. Uh, this had a, another effect of, of limiting all textile factories because men, women, and children worked together. And so if the women and children couldn't work, then the men couldn't work as well. And note, as we're talking about this, 
remember that factories actually made up only a very, very small proportion of the actual working places in Britain, even up to 1850, even up to the time when people recognized that the Industrial Revolution was definitely in full swing. Most people were still working in artisan or crafts trades or in trades that had been changed in other ways by the Industrial Revolution, like brewing and glassworks that might have had increasing amounts of technology and capital. It might have begun consolidated in new ways, but they did not yet have the sort of factory discipline of the leading sectors of textiles and ironworks and so on. And another process that was giving people more leisure time was the recreation of an extra day of leisure. Now, this shifted from the old traditional St. Monday, which did still last in a number of northern communities, to what we now consider an enshrined weekend day of Saturday. Now, originally, Saturday was pushed as a half day, and this was, was, was pushed by a broad coalition of factory owners who wanted a definite time off for their workers so that everybody would turn up to the factory on time every other day and religious people who wanted a day off on Saturday so that working people could go and get all their household chores done, leaving Sunday open for all of the great things that you can do in church. And also, of course, this was pushed by the workers themselves for obvious reasons. Now, slowly from, I guess, the 1870s, this Saturday half day and then increasingly a full day started to take hold. People increasingly had part of Saturday off. And this did not just create a lot more leisure time, it created new kinds of leisure time. People could now know that every other working person that they knew would get off part of Saturday, even if they lived in different communities, even if they were under different kinds of cultural norms of work. And that meant that you got things arising like competitive sports. To have something like a football league that we have today, you need to make sure that everybody who's playing football, be they amateurs or professionals, can show up at the same time to have matches. Well, given that this time most of the football leagues and some of the other sporting leagues were amateur, to have a part of the day that everybody had off meant that there could be a blossoming of competitive sports. And this did indeed happen. After everybody got the Saturday off, this became a day that people could go to the races, go to the football, go to the cricket, do all of those fun things outside with their friends. Also, you start to get something new, a consolidated holiday time period for the working classes. This is not like it used to be in the past where you would have, you know, scattered moments of holidays and fairs and wakes throughout the year, but rather it would be a solid week off during the summer where all of the working class people of a particular factory could go off and holiday together, right? So this is a condensation, a rationalization of uh, leisure time, of having a big block of leisure time in the middle of the year. Now, if it seems that my story of what's happening to labor is much shakier 
after 1830? Well, it's true, because for some reason, I don't have a great grasp of it yet. It might be that the books that I read didn't touch upon it as much, or it might be that since they happen later on in the books and I get more tired as I'm reading them, I don't pay as much attention to them either in reading them or note-taking. And this is I have been drafting this episode is something that I've realized increasingly that I'm going to need to go back to the books and figure out with much greater clarity what happens between 1830 and 1914. Or, alternatively, just cross my fingers that during the exam I don't get any follow-up questions about this time period. Ah, this is my work. This is my labor of constantly worrying about whether I know enough about these at sometimes obscure movements. Anyway, thanks very much for sticking with me. I have to thank very, very much Jonathan Lear for giving us the music for the show and Duncan Barton for giving us the image. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Drop me a line. It is really helpful for getting new people to listen, and it tells me that there's people out there who are listening. Um, you should also share it on social media, and you can go to our website at historian. Live. Thanks very much, and tomorrow I think we're going to be talking about servants. Uh, also, I welcome any recommendations or any questions which I can uh, follow up to on the show. Thanks very much, guys, and I'll see you tomorrow.